Sled is a simple thing. Yes, yeah, so's a toilet. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Basically, what you're looking to do is get your sorry rear ends from the top of an icy chute to the bottom. You're zigging, sagging. It's the biggest, coldest roller coaster you've ever been on. Drawback to this delightful winter sport is the high speed crash. That hurts. Always remember, your bones will not break in a bobsled. No, no. They shatter. So, who wants in? Well, good morning, Hope. Welcome. My name is Eli. I'm one of the ministers here at the Ankeny campus, and I get so excited about the Olympics every year. I really enjoy the Olympics. I mean, uh, getting to see these different sports that you normally don't watch on a regular basis or even learn about new sports you never knew existed, like who would have figured biathlon was a thing until you saw the Winter Olympics and different cultures and stuff. I really enjoy it. If I was forced to choose between, you know, Summer Olympics or Winter, I think I might actually prefer Winter Olympics. I'm probably in the minority. But you see, I grew up in Nebraska where we don't see things like this. Uh, Nebraska is not known for its alpine sports in the wintertime. It's not known for downhill anything. Um, so getting to watch downhill skiing and snowboarding and bobsledding, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And I was listening to the news a couple of weeks ago, and I heard that the, the Jamaican bobsled team actually qualified this year for the four-man event in the Olympics. I think it's the first time that's happened since the 90s. So, of course, that meant I had to watch the movie Cool Runnings with my kids. Uh, they're, they're now old enough where they can appreciate this fine piece of cinema. <laughs> cool runnings that, that tells the, the true story of the first Jamaican bobsled team that competed in the 88 Calgary Olympic Games. Uh, they changed the names and events and some of the details to make it more interesting, but it's a true story. Uh, and so we watched it together, and I don't think I've seen this movie in 25 years, so watching it again and picking up on some of the themes that I forgot were in there was actually pretty amazing. It actually made me think of the message series that we've been in the last month around hope, uh, Five Habits of Highly Effective Christians. This is our last week in this sermon series where we've been exploring these different ways that God gives us in Scripture to grow in our faith. But I was an English major at the University of Iowa. That was my background. Um, one, because I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do when I grew up. 
And two, because words just tend to stick to me, stick with me. I get really hung up on the meanings of words and the ways that we use language to communicate concepts and ideas. So this whole month that we've been doing this series on five habits of highly effective Christians, which has been great. You should go back and listen to these messages from Pastor Mike and Pastor Scott on YouTube or podcast. But one word has really just been sticking with me. I haven't been able to let it go. It's that word effective. What do we mean when we say an effective Christian? It's not really a word that we put in the context of spirituality all that often. I don't think I've ever seen spirituality and faith talked about in terms of effectiveness before. What does that actually mean? Well, we, I mean, we borrowed the title from the, the wildly popular Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the Stephen Covey book and program that uh, came out in the late 80s and was incredibly popular, kind of hit at that right time of when leadership development and coaching was a, was a big thing. And then the way that effectiveness gets talked about in that context is, is success, you know, how to be a more successful, influential person, more productive, constructive, how to get ahead in life and not knocking it at all. I actually took it for a job one time a long time ago. Uh, I know plenty of churches that have actually used seven habits to help coach their staff in, in leadership. So it's a good program. But the way that it talks about effectiveness is really in, in a worldly standard. It's, it's how to be more influential, maybe even how to be more powerful in, in your circle of influence, really how to get ahead. And when I look at that definition of effectiveness, and I start to compare it to Christianity or the teachings and, and the example of Jesus Christ, there are, there are some disconnects, I think. Now, I wonder what if we were to look at Jesus's life and compare it to how we view effectiveness traditionally in our culture, how well would those two things line up? Because Jesus is full of paradoxes. And we talk, it all, talk about it all the time here at Hope, the paradoxical life of Jesus Christ. And we don't even have to reach too far back in recent memory. Every Christmas that we celebrate, we remind ourselves that the, the creator, the God of the universe who made everything, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, comes into our existence with no fanfare or celebration. There's no coronation. He comes born in a barn surrounded by shepherds and animals. Doesn't seem to be highly effective. Fast forward a few years and Jesus' parents, he's 12 years old, they take him to be dedicated in the temple according to Jewish tradition. And, and when they take him there, Mary and Joseph, you know, kind of finish up and they leave and they realize, you know, Jesus isn't with them. So, oops, we forgot God. We better go back and find him. Uh, and they go back to the temple and they find Jesus, this 12-year-old, talking with the religious leaders and being in conversation with them and even teaching himself. And these, these, these uh, religious uh, priests are really impressed and Jesus tells his parents, parents, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And if it's not a paradox that a 12-year-old boy would just want to hang out in church, I don't know what is. You fast forward even a couple more years and Jesus is building his movement. He's starting to call disciples, followers to himself. And you would think that a highly effective person would want to surround himself with the best people, the brightest people, the cream of the crop. And instead, Jesus surrounds himself with, with fishermen tax collectors, with a couple of criminals even. That's who Jesus surrounds himself with, builds this worldwide movement from. Doesn't seem to be a highly effective way to go about doing anything. When, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem during Holy Week, and the people of Jerusalem are expecting this Messiah, this liberator, this conquering king to come in and set them free from oppression. They're expecting a conqueror, and Jesus doesn't ride in on a war horse. He comes riding on a donkey. And when Jesus saves the world, 
rescues the entire creation from its sin. He doesn't take lives. He gives up his own. It's not highly effective, at least in the ways that that we judge effectiveness. You know, again, the way that Jesus lived his life and calls us as his followers to to follow in his example is, is a problem for our culture. Our culture, when it judges effectiveness, wants to talk about achievement and success and influence and building your brand. And that's what it means to be truly effective in this life. And that definition of effectiveness doesn't leave a whole lot of margin for a Jesus who says, blessed are the humble. Blessed are you when people persecute you. For for a Jesus who says to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Don't just passively ignore the people you don't get along with. Don't just pretend that there isn't conflict. Go out of your way, Jesus says, to find something that you can do that is good for a person who hates you. That doesn't sound like a way to get ahead in life. That actually sounds like a way to finish dead last, which is exactly where Jesus tells us we should be. That the first will be last and the last will be first in the way that God defines effectiveness. So it's a problem for our culture to take Jesus seriously and to follow his example, to follow his teaching. But that's not new. It was a problem for people in Jesus' day as well, for his culture. Wanting to be number one in life is not a new invention. It was something that's existed since the beginning of time. And that's where we get people like the Apostle Paul who wrote our Bible reading for today. So we're in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. And the Apostle Paul is this amazing figure. And we kind of look up to him because God used him to, to really start the movement of Christianity after Jesus, planting churches all over the Mediterranean. And, and this letter that he writes to the, the church in Philippi in the north of Greece for our Bible reading, he explains to them what it means to follow the example of Jesus Christ. But before Paul was you know, the Apostle Paul, church planter, disciple maker, leader, he was a Pharisee named Saul, and he was highly effective. Saul was a highly effective Pharisee, an incredibly bright, strong leader who who believed that what he was doing, making a living persecuting Christians, persecuting the church, going after the people who he felt were threatening to his way of life, he felt like that was what it meant to be successful and effective. So in our Bible reading, when when he's writing to this Philippian church, a chapter before in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to open your Bibles there, Paul actually shares his, his testimony of what he was like before he met Jesus. And it's a healthy practice for all of us to, to be engaged in. If you've never done this before, just go home today and write down what your life was like before you met Jesus. Who were you before then? What were the things that were the most valuable to you, your highest priorities, the ways that you would define success and effectiveness and achievement? What was your life before you met Jesus? And this is what Paul says about that. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. What Paul is saying is, if you think you're great, I was better. Circumcised on the eighth day. It's a weird thing to brag about, but we'll go with it. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, 
As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, I struggle with pride in my life, but I don't remember a time when I ever thought I was perfect. But Paul here is being brutally honest. He's saying, this is really what I thought of myself before I had an encounter with Christ. I thought I could do no wrong. I thought I was 100% right in my actions, especially those going after Christians and, and persecuting churches. I thought that I was faultless before I met Jesus Christ. I was a highly effective person at what I did. I was number one in all of these things. And it'd be really easy for us to judge Paul and say, well, I don't do that. Until I would start to put my own, let's put our own credentials into this list. How would you fill fill out this list? What are the things in your life that you feel most proud about? Those parts of your life, and I'm not talking a healthy pride, I'm talking an unhealthy values-based judgment about this is what's most important to me, most important about me. I wonder what you'd put in. Because, you know, before Paul met Jesus, he bragged about his religiousness, about his spirituality, about his morality. Yep, we don't struggle with that, right? There's, Christians don't have a problem with puffing themselves up about being more moral, more righteous than other people. We don't have a problem with pointing moralistic fingers at the world around us and saying, well, they're not as good as me because I'm religious. We don't have a problem with that in Christianity. Before, before Paul met Jesus, he bragged about his nationality, about his ethnicity. We don't have a problem with that right now in our culture, do we? It's not a, especially not in the United States. We don't have an issue with thinking that, that we're the best and that other people aren't as good as and that, that one race is better than another, one nationality is better than another, that the most important thing about you is where you were born. We don't have a problem with that, do we? Before Paul met Jesus, he bragged about his vocation, about his achievements, his accomplishments, the things that he did for work. I've certainly never felt an unhealthy amount of pride and entitlement from the things that I've accomplished in my life. I've never looked at the degrees hanging on my wall with pathetic pride in my heart, thinking that that was when I really arrived. I certainly wouldn't go chasing more of those things, trying to achieve more accomplishments and gaining more in life and wanting to continue to prove to other people that I think I'm good enough. That I, I don't go through life thinking that if I just had one more possession or one more position or one more piece of paper that I find will have arrived. I don't struggle with that at all. It's not my story. What, what would you fill into this list? What are those things that you put up on a pedestal as the most important thing to you in your life that's more important than even God? And how has that gone for you? What has it done? In the movie Cool Runnings, the, uh, the team finds out that their coach, played by John Candy, has a, a secret in his past, not unlike Paul's testimony, not unlike our own, the people we were before we met Jesus, the things that we struggled with, they find out that their coach had actually cheated when he was a professional athlete, cheated to win more races and got caught and it ruined his life, it wrecked his career. And so in this scene, they actually get to hear what he learned from that experience. Let's watch. Race, you in here? Hey, coach. Oh, there you are. How you feeling? All right. Good, good. You all set to follow in your father's footsteps? I think so. 
You think so? All right. I know so. That's more like it. We're gonna go grab a bite to eat. You wanna join us? Nah. I didn't think so. I'll pick you something up. Hey, Coach. Yeah? I have to ask you a question. Sure. But you don't have to answer if you don't want to. I mean, I want you to, but if you can't, I understand. You want to know why I cheated, right? Yes, I do. That's a fair question. It's quite simple, really. I had to win. You see, Therese, I'd made winning my whole life. And when you make winning your whole life, you have to keep on winning, no matter what. You understand that? No, I don't understand, Coach. You had two gold medals. You had it all. Therese, a gold medal is a wonderful thing. But if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. Hey, Coach. How will I know if I'm enough? When you cross that finish line, you'll know. So I wonder what, what it is for you today. What, what's it for you? What is that thing that you feel like you're never going to be enough without? That, that thing that you're chasing, putting up on the pedestal, that you think that's what effectiveness looks like, that's what success looks like, that's what it means? You know, is it that next accomplishment, that next award, that next achievement, that next promotion? That ne- what is that thing for you that you feel like is more important than Jesus Christ? Because when Paul actually does realize that all of those things, none of those things last, all those accomplishments, those things that he felt the most pride in, none of those things will survive eternity. The only thing that really matters is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the only thing eternal about who we really are. When Paul realizes that and he gives his life to Jesus Christ and he says, Jesus is the most important thing about who I am. He's where I get my value from. He's who gets to tell me what's most important in my life. Everything changed for Paul. In in Philippians 3, he tells us his testimony of who he was before he met Jesus. This is who he is after. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He doesn't, not just less important, I consider those things to be of no value at all compared to the eternal worth of knowing that who I am and what I'm doing in this life matters because I serve Jesus and he loves me and he says that I am valuable. When he learns that that's the most important thing, he's able to set all of those other things aside. And he even says, I found the secret, I found the secret to this life because of that. In our Bible reading, he says, the secret in this life, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances Whether I have nothing or I have everything, whether I'm hungry or I'm full, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Now, contentment, that's a word in Christianity we we don't like to talk about all that often. What does contentment mean for us today? What does it look like? 
I, I mentioned I was an English major in college, which means I did not have a job when I graduated. <laughs> Surprising. I had uh, interned at a church in Iowa City. I'd been on staff as a worship leader for a while in college, and that's kind of how I got my start. But at that time, I really didn't know if that's what God was calling me to, to be in ministry full time. So uh, I took a job at a college in eastern Tennessee, Bristol, Tennessee. Any NASCAR fans? Bristol, Tennessee? It's not a lot in Iowa. Everyone in Bristol would have had their hands up by now. The entire economy runs on race car driving. It's a big culture shock for me, especially going from you know, the Midwest to the Smoky Mountains. But uh, this college in eastern Tennessee hired me to be a resident director. So I'd been an RA at Iowa. People might know what that is. On-campus staff. And a resident director is a full-time live-in director. So my first apartment out of college was going backwards to live in the men's dormitory at this college, where as a resident director, you are basically the backstop for any catastrophe that happens, no matter what. Uh, Sometimes literally putting out fires at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, It was an amazing, amazing experience. There's, you know, there's the written expectations for a job like this, the job description, the things that, you know, there's time off written down, there's a call schedule, a rotation, there's, you know, You get time to be by yourself, but there's also an unwritten, unspoken expectation for a job like that. And some of you might have this even in your own career today. If you want to advance, they would not say this out loud. If you wanted to get ahead in this career, if you wanted to be highly effective, and there's a career track too, it's where like college vice presidents can come from and things like that. If you want to advance in this career and be effective, then you really need to be on call 24-7. You need to have the attitude, the mindset that, that even if you don't have the call phone in your pocket, you're the one who is going to respond. You are going to give all of yourself all day, every day to this job. My wife and I, we were engaged at the time. She was doing her internship in San Diego and I was in Bristol. So three time zones apart, um, communicating uh, this new thing called Skype back in the day. Poor Skype. When we finally got married that March, she got the privilege of moving into my apartment in the men's dormitory at this college. It was our first apartment together. And I began feeling this discontentment with that mentality around work. Not not a discontentment about wanting to get more, earn more, gain more, a holy discontentment that a 24-7 mindset when it comes to your vocation is not the healthiest way to live your life. You know, and some, there are many careers like this. Maybe you even work in one where the unspoken expectation is not a full-time job, but 50, 60, 70 hours a week, that that's really what you need to do to advance in your career, to be highly effective, to have success. So as I'm feeling this holy discontentment that I really don't think I want my life to be this way, my wife and I started praying about, okay, God, what else could we do? Would you do? We didn't know anybody in Tennessee, and we were just open. God, where do you want us to go? We will go anywhere because we want to follow you. We want to be content in our circumstances. We want to know that you're the one who's driving us forward in this life, that you're more important to me than my job. God, you're more important to me than what I do for a living. So where would you send us? And after praying that prayer for a a few months, a company in Chicago uh, reached out because they were looking for somebody who uh, does the things that my wife does. And uh, a church in the same area, in the suburbs of Chicago, was looking for a guy like me. 
to jump back into ministry, to lead worship, to build up small groups, to, to really start a, a ministry career. And, and so we said yes. Now, at the time, being newly married and already having moved once across the country, we really didn't have a lot of money to move back across, halfway across the country to Chicago. But we still said yes, and we decided we're going to take this step because we feel like that's what God is calling us to do. And I remember moving into our, our 800-square-foot basement apartment and having about, you know, like a budget of maybe $80 to go and get, you know, the, the bare essentials from the grocery store to make it to the first payday. And we were in the checkout line at Woodman's Grocery Store in North Aurora, and we got rang up for something like $79 and change. And I will never forget standing there and feeling just this, this wave of contentment wash over me. You'd think I would have been panicking how are we going to make it to the next week or the next month? But I felt so settled that what we were doing was following what God had asked us to do that I knew, I trusted that he was going to watch after us to take care of us, and he has. God has done so many miraculous things in my family's life over the last 15 years of doing ministry that, that I'm constantly amazed that we get to see and follow God who cares about us to make sure that he's the most important thing in our decision-making, in our lives, to actually get to learn to be content whatever the circumstances, and then really to live into, you know, Philippians 4.13, that famous verse from our Bible reading, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the popular verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But look at the context. It doesn't come from just nowhere. You don't just get strength all the time for whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. It comes from being content, that when you find yourself in a place of contentment, that you know that the most important thing in your life is who you are to God and that you found yourself in a relationship with Jesus, that he is the highest uh, uh, part of who you are, then you have access to all the strength that he offers you. When I find myself content, that's when I know I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So I'm preparing for this weekend, and um, you know, contentment is a big idea. It's hard to kind of wrap your minds around. It is for me too. So when I'm doing that, and I'm thinking about, okay, God, what do we want to talk about this weekend? Oftentimes, I'll get outside and walk around and pray about it. And it was an awful week to do that this week, to walk around outside and try and focus on, you know, contentment. And I'm walking around, and I'm even praying for my own life now, is Christ enough for me? Is Christ enough? Am I content with where I am today all these years later from some of those first steps? Is Christ enough? And I'm walking around, and there's just ice everywhere right now. Like, it's not even good snow. You can't have a snowball fight because somebody would get hurt. And I'm walking around, and is Christ enough? And I start to realize that I'm praying this prayer, and the first letters of the words that I'm praying spell the word ice. Really, God? I don't think in all these years that I've been preaching that I've ever had an acrostic. So, of course, I'm like, okay, what can ice teach me about contentment? It's okay to let your minds wander creatively when you're praying. You know, oftentimes when Jesus would teach, he would say things like, consider the lilies of the field, and he would talk about provision, or consider the birds of the air, and he would talk about how much he cares about you. So I'm thinking, okay, consider the ice at the end of my driveway that I cannot get off with a pickaxe. How can that teach me what it means to be content? And of course, the first thing that immediately came to mind is ice is uncomfortable. 
Ice is really, cold weather is just uncomfortable. One of the funny things about this movie is, is how much it took for these men from Jamaica who had never left that island in the Caribbean to come all the way to Canada and now have to deal with sub-zero temperatures and get acclimated to it for the very first time in their lives. It took a lot of effort to acclimate themselves to it. It doesn't come naturally to any of us. Contentment is not something that comes naturally to us. If you think all the way back to the very first story of the Bible, Adam and Eve are put in the Garden of Eden. Eden means paradise. Everything they need and want is right there, including the very presence of God himself. And he says, the one thing you can't have is that piece of fruit on the tree. And the one thing that they wanted was that piece of fruit on the tree. Maybe even discontentment with what you have and where you are could be a root sin for all of us doesn't come naturally. It takes some getting used to, some acclimation. And, and Paul even has some insight for that in Philippians. He talks about how we can acclimate ourselves to an attitude of contentment by paying attention to the things that are affecting us. Maybe this weekend we're not talking about being an effective Christian. We're talking about how to be an affected Christian. What are the things that are influencing you? What are the things that are affecting your life? Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about these things. When you're, when you're scrolling on your Twitter feed, are you running across things that are true or right or pure? Not on my social media feed. Man, actually the things that the world keeps throwing at me continue to tell me I should be discontent and disappointed with where I am and I need to be doing more to get ahead. Instead of focusing on the things that are true and right and pure and lovely, the world continues to bombard us with information that says you should be discontent. But Paul says when you're affected by these things that God has given us, that's when you can start to find contentment in your life, when you're driving on your way to work. When was the last time you noticed something admirable or noble? That one of the ways to build up being acclimated to a more content life is actually paying attention to the things that you're paying attention to, to choose what's affecting you. Not to be passive about the things that we're looking at and viewing and paying attention to, but actually notice what it's doing to us. Is what you're looking at and viewing and, and, and participating in around you helping you to become more content with where you are and, and to show you that Jesus really is the most important thing in life? Or is it telling you, you should want more, you should do more, you should strive harder, achieve? So that was the first thing I noticed. It was uncomfortable. It takes some acclimation, some getting used to. The next thing I notice as I'm walking around on the ice is it's slippery. Revelation here. Ice is slippery. One minute you'll be walking along feeling perfectly content. The next minute, right on your butt. Man, I can't tell you. How long after that checkout line experience where I felt content having just barely what I needed for the week for my wife and, I, and myself, that I felt content maybe a few days later. It didn't take long to start feeling worried and anxious and discontent with where I was. It's not, a, it's not a straight line to the top of the mountain of contentment. It's pretty up and down. 
I mentioned, you know, growing up in Nebraska, not having many winter sports, but we did have ice hockey. I grew up on a lake, and uh, every winter the pond would freeze over. Um, me and all the neighbor kids would get out there, and we'd play hockey for, for hours. It, it wasn't like a formal league. Think like the Sandlot, but for ice hockey. And it's one of the winter sports that I still follow, enjoy watching, even when it's not the Olympics. Uh, so much fun doing that. But like any parents, like myself with my kids, when they're just figuring out how to play a sport, you're not getting them the best equipment. You're not you know, investing tons of money if they're just going to not really enjoy themselves. So I think the skates that I learned how to play hockey in were like these Goodwill, I think they were figure skates. Um, and they weren't sharp at all. They're pretty dull. You know, I'm sliding all over the place, just figuring it out. Um, the stick that I had, I, I'm left-handed, and it was a right-handed hockey stick. There's a difference if you didn't know. So I'm not playing with the best equipment, but I'm still kind of enjoying it and having fun. So one year for Christmas, I remember my parents actually got me brand-new hockey skates and a stick that was actually the, the right size and, and left-handed for me. And it changed the game. It made it so much more enjoyable. We were able to play so much longer and get so many more bruises because we had the right equipment. And so all these weeks that we've been talking about how to be a highly effective Christian, it's not to to chase the things that the world says is important. It's to have the right tools, the right equipment to grow in your spiritual life, to become more content, to become more settled that Jesus really is the most important thing for you, that Christ is enough to meet all of your needs. And that comes from things like we've been talking about, having the right equipment, being in classes at, at church and getting into small groups and joining these ministry teams that allow us to serve together and use our gifts and to worship with each other and remind ourselves of the promises of Jesus Christ that he does love you. He does care for you. He wants what's best for your life. Finally, the thing I noticed as I was, again, thinking uh, these great memories of playing pond hockey as a kid, I remember skating out into the middle of, of a frozen lake and just looking around, realizing when else do you get to look at this? I mean, we didn't have a boat growing up. Unless you have a boat in the warmer months, you can't be out in the middle of a lake standing around just looking at things. It really changes your perspective. Ice gives us kind of a bridge to, to look at the world in a different way. It actually allows you to walk on water, maybe even to see things from God's point of view, a, a different perspective in the world than you normally see, to stand where you couldn't stand before. Maybe to see the, the, these paradoxes that Jesus talks about and lives in front of us and to really make them true for us. The, the, the best way to get ahead in life isn't by outperforming other people, it's actually by being content with where we are today. Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest, kind of sums it up this way. We suffer to get well, we surrender to win, we die to live, which is what Jesus shows us on the cross. And we give it away to keep it. You know, for Paul in Philippians to say, I was holding on so tightly to who I was before, to all of these parts of myself that I thought were more important than God. And when I started to, to release those things, to open my hands and to say, God, whatever you want to do with my life, wherever you want me to go, that's where I'll go. I'll follow you there. And to actually start to receive blessings because you were letting go of the things that you thought were more important than God. That you actually can, in a weird way, you can win by, by losing. So one more clip from the movie Cool Runnings. Every underdog movie ends the same way. The underdog wins, right? Wouldn't be an underdog movie if the underdog didn't win. But in this movie, something different happens that shows us a different version, a different reality, a different truth 
to what it really means to be effective. Let's watch. What a run Bannock is having. He's letting loose on this extremely fast course. And even with that rickety old sled, the Jamaicans are flying through the turns. This does not look good. Something's got to be wrong. The Jamaicans on a record pace as they fly almost out of control around the turn. Now the speed seems too much, and I don't think he's going to be able to hold it. slow claps in movies. <laughs> I miss it. We need to cheer each other on more. You know, these guys lost. They lost. They're dead last. Finished that race last. But they weren't losers. Because I think what they were able to realize is it wasn't whether or not you finished the race ahead of everybody else. It's how you finished. It's what your values really were. It was what was most important. And so for us this week, I think that's my encouragement for you, 
to keep asking yourself this question, is Christ enough? And as you're scraping ice off your windshield when it gets below zero again and you're wondering, man, I need a bigger garage or a you know, remote start for my car or something, is Christ enough? Or shoveling snow off of your neighbor's driveway who hates you because you've decided you want to do good for somebody you don't get along with and keep asking yourself, is Christ enough? Or instead of working, you know, 60 hours, you take some time and just go ice skating with family or friends. And Is Christ enough? To continue to remind yourself that he is the thing that truly lasts. He is the relationship that matters for all of eternity. And he loves you and will take care of you.